Hello, everyone. It's 2019. Welcome to a new year. Welcome to a new year of the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan for episode 40. My guest is architect David McClay Kidd. If one were to reflect on David McClay Kidd's career so far, it would soon become evident what an incredible adventurous journey it's been. It's a trip that's been a combination of stunning good fortune, immense talent and creativity, artistic courage, fortuitous timing, and a rare sense for how to push golf design in new directions. Kidd was a young, unknown 20-something Scot when Mike Kaiser selected him to build the first course at Bandon Dunes, where he built a sumptuous Lynx-inspired design that helped ignite and give credibility to the destination golf movement. After Bandon, Kidd became one of the hottest architects on the planet, and he explored the planet through a series of bold and diverse courses in places like Scotland, Ireland, Fiji, South Africa, Nicaragua, the U.S., and elsewhere. At Gamble Sands in Washington State, opened in 2014, he unveiled a new conceptual strategy, one that presents the golfer with an enormous amount of room off the tee and total visibility of the hole to encourage confident, aggressive play. That philosophy struck a chord with Mike Kaiser, who chose to reunite with Kidd at Sand Valley in Wisconsin for the creation of Mammoth Dunes, one of the most audacious and spectacular golf courses in the country that debuted in 2018. Kidd has always tried to think independently and sometimes radically about golf design, and that willingness to explore different ideas has occasionally led to controversy and criticism. It's also, interestingly, meant that Kidd sometimes has had to defend or answer for his art in a way that contemporaries like, say, Bill Coor or Gil Hans rarely have. Nonetheless, he remains at the top of the design pyramid. If there's such a thing as architecture's big four right now, Kidd is in it alongside Core, Hans, and Tom Doak. I talked to him a few days after Christmas, and we cover all of this. I think David was feeling a little salty when we spoke, and perhaps used this discussion and some of my inquiries as a way to rebut certain critiques or perceived misconceptions about his work, specifically elements of Mammoth Dunes. I loved it, and the feistiness made for an enjoyable, lively conversation. I think you'll enjoy it too. Buckle up. Here's David McClay Kidd. Thanks for taking some time out of the holiday break to do this. No problem. We don't do a whole lot between Christmas and New Year. I basically take the the whole two weeks off because there's not a lot of usually going on in my world at this time of year. Is that the way you plan it? Do you set up your schedule so you have some downtime or does it just work out yeah. naturally? Yeah, I mean, no one no one wants me coming to visit their golf course, you know, December 29th. Not usually. So I figured over 25 years of doing this that it's, if I can get my uh, team to take a couple of weeks off and go hang with their families, it makes me feel a little better about having them on the road for 12 months of the, the other yeah, 11 and a half months of the year. <laughs> it's very kind of you to give them yeah. a week or two off. <laughs> what, what are you working on right now? Where are you in the world? Uh, I'm working on a few different things. I'm working on some remodel projects uh, on the West Coast. Uh, I'm working on new projects uh, overseas and in the U.S., some of which I can talk about, some of which I can't. Uh, uh, we're doing uh, remote or renovation work at Bandon for the 2020 Amateur. Uh, that's kind of where uh, a couple of my guys are right now or will be right after the holidays again. Uh, so we're a little bit of a hiatus after opening two projects this year. Uh, we're sort of building up ahead of steam again to go into the next round of things, so we'll see. 
we're hopefully 2019 will be busy as they'll get out. Uh, some projects that you're particularly excited about? I mean, you've, you've often got some really spectacular properties to design upon. Is it things in that nature, similar types of properties? Hey, uh, yeah, there are. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of projects right now that are uh, on sand sites, and sand is the elixir of golf. So, you know, anything that's on sand makes you look twice as good as you really are. Uh, so, those are always the best ones. I had Bruce Hepner on recently, and he made an interesting comment. I asked him if he ever pursues new build, new construction projects right now. You know, he mostly does re- restoration work now. And he yeah. said he doesn't. He's really happy doing restoration work. That's where he wants to be. And even if he wanted to do new jobs, there's, he said all the good jobs go to four four guys. He said that you know Bill Coor and Gil Hans are getting all the the premium jobs, and then you and Tom Doak uh, get all anything that's good that's left over. I'm curious is is that is that your perspective? You're on the other side of the glass. What is that upper? You know, you're the big four. How do, is that the way it looks to you? Uh, yeah, probably does, unfortunately. Uh, I, I used the analogy the other day. I was chatting to a friend of mine, and they were saying, you know, what's going on? And, you know, you must be so busy. And I said, you know, actually, 2018, we weren't that busy. We, we wrapped up uh, a bunch of projects uh, early in 2018, uh, and now we're sort of building ahead of steam again. And he said, well, you know, I see all these projects that uh, – Bill Kerr doing and Gil Hans is doing and Tom Doak's doing and you know you know what about you and I said you know it's a bit like being on the New York uh, or sorry the New England Patriots but you're not the starting quarterback you're not Tom Brady you're not even the second guy uh, on the Patriots you're actually the third guy uh, at least on the on the roster so <laughs> you're playing for the best team but there's at least two guys in front of you that are going to start before you do. Uh, and that's there. You know, that's it's a blessing and a curse all at the same time. So you have to find, you know, either they passed or you find an owner where you have a, a personal connection with, or they loved your work more than they did theirs. Uh, you know, somewhere in there. I mean, certainly nothing to gripe about. We we still get uh, much more than our fair share of really, really awesome projects. Uh, and that doesn't look to be slowing up anytime soon. I think we still will. And we only need, you know, one project, two of those projects. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're busy for a while. You know, it takes at least three years uh, to complete a project. And, and in, in my own analysis, it probably takes more like five from when you start work on a project and it doesn't quite have the financing or it doesn't have the permits together. And so it takes a year or two to get all that stuff together. And then it takes another year or two to actually build. And then it takes another uh, year or so to grow in and do all the the pre-opening stuff and get it open. So it's usually like a five-year gig on a new project. So if we have a hopper with, you know, half a dozen to a dozen of those and they come off even at a very slow rate, it's still a very, it's a long lead time of work that stretches out for a long time. Yeah, I remember hearing Bill Core talk about this early in the, he and Ben's career. They ideally wanted to do one or two projects at a time, and they learned that they couldn't only accept one or two projects. You had to have about five in various stages of development because three of them probably were going to 
not pan out at any given time. So it's a it's it's a bit of a juggling act and trying to predict the future and always keeping irons in the fire and you know never knowing exactly what's going to pop and when. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. You, you just don't know. You know, I, I at the busiest point in my career, I had a number of irons in the fire and they all came off. And at, at one point in the I think around 2007, eight, that kind of framework, I had seven projects in construction all at the same time. And when you're trying to make it to those sites, you know, once a month for a few days, there aren't enough days in the month to hit seven of them, especially when I had them spread completely around planet Earth. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's too many and you just can't do it. If you had three, you probably could do it, but you would, you'd barely be getting home. Uh, so, you know, somewhere in that one to three range is probably good. In a perfect world, you've got, you know, one at the beginning of construction, one at the end of construction, you know, the next one uh, lining up to go into construction, you know, that kind of thing. Construction is what takes all the time. That's where, you know, that core group of guys are spending a lot of time. I, I looked at my calendar the other day to see how many days I actually spent on site at, at uh, Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley. And it was 106 days on site in two summers of construction. Right. So that is a lot. So you know, how you could do three of those all at once, you know, is, is beyond, you know, it's impossible unless you're Doctor Who with a time machine. We're so used now in this era that we're in right now, this neoclassical era where guys like yourself and Bill and Tom, you know, they do so much, they're on site so much and you have your, your guys who spend every day on site and it's very particular, you know, it's very cultivated, it's very hands-on. And isn't it strange to think that golf course architecture went decades and decades where that was, you know, only maybe Pete Dye was building golf courses like that and you had names on these design firms who definitely weren't there 106 days they would show up maybe a total of six days throughout the entire you know production cycle <laughs> and that's just the way golf courses were built for many many years i when i first came to the u.s in the in the mid 90s i i just couldn't understand it i i i scratched my head coming from the uk coming from scotland that these golf courses were being built that looked like they were being produced by, you know, a, a McDonald's. You know, they, they were like the Olive Garden of golf courses, uh, just one after another after another. They all looked pretty much the same. Uh, and these architects were being lauded by the golf media. Uh, and, you know, these guys are geniuses. And I, I'm looking at it going, really, is this? I can't, I can't figure out why the the same architects and these magazines are talking about Scotland being the uh, heaven on earth for a golfer uh, and these guys are so influenced by golf from where I'm from and yet what they're building looks nothing like it not even close or play uh, I, yeah I, plays nothing like it more nothing like it and I'm confused what what is going on is you know I I think in golf even today you know the story of the emperor's new clothes. I think it still exists a little bit, and it certainly existed 30 years ago. How do you think it still exists? There's still a degree of uh, the 
the people that think very deeply about golf course architecture thinking way too deeply and saying, you know, this is perfect over here. And then a whole bunch of people saying, oh, shit, you know, I have to agree with that because I, I really didn't enjoy it. But I'm going to say I did anyway because everybody else says that I should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that exists in everything, whether it's fine wine or fine dining or whatever that you know the critics will say one thing and and a bunch of people will agree because they think they should uh and so the the thing is continues to perpetuate itself it's no different it's certainly better than it was yeah so that i mean i definitely see the there are feedback loops in in golf course architecture and the appreciation of it yeah and then it's it's interesting though and you've experienced this when you when you try to break out of that it, it's it's often controversial it often isn't isn't uh, taken as a reaction to an art form in a logical place to where the product or the art can move it's it's just seen as outside the boundaries of what's acceptable well it's no fun staying inside the boundaries it's i mean it's only what is the point of doing it if you're going to stay well within the safe boundaries? I mean, that, then it's just a business. Uh, it's only fun when you're pushing yourself and your small team and the boundaries and, and exceeding a client's expectations, one would hope. Uh, and then the most important thing is you're creating opinion in the, in the golfer who comes to play it. You're, you're getting them to feel emotion uh, in playing what they're they're seeing they're experiencing right in front of them if it's all too predictable where's the passion in that where's the enjoyment and the emotion in there uh you know i failed you know obviously i don't want the emotion to be i i hated it uh but i also don't want it to be yeah it was okay you know that's uh, irrelevance is the thing that uh, i would think that most artists fear most uh, it's certainly something I would fear would be to, to be considered irrelevant. Even if your work was was considered to be okay, you know, it doesn't offend anyone and everyone kind of likes it. Uh, but no, it doesn't offend anyone. It doesn't, no one loves it. No one's willing to fight for it. Uh, you know, that sense of having poured all of your passion into something and then have it considered somewhat irrelevant would be, that would probably be the ultimate painful reaction. <laughs> Well, I'd like to explore that topic a little a little bit later. I was thinking, though, when we when you just mentioned this, and I've talked about this before with other people on this podcast, is during this period we were talking about, not now, but you know, in the eighties and nineties, maybe. I always felt like the golf media was absent. They abnegated their responsibility of holding a mirror up to the architecture and the styles and being honest about what was being built. And there were good good intentions and good people and talented people in the media, but it, it we lacked a voice, a reflection, or any any ability or any means to hold the art of architecture accountable. Do you feel? And first of all, I think you'd probably agree with that. You know, we just didn't have it. That's why you could praise, you know, the course of the day mentality. You know, all the the big production architecture houses that were just stamping out their house style over and over again. Do you feel like golf media right now is better at holding a mirror up to what's being built around the world and and having more of a critical mindset in how it's the architecture is analyzed? Well, I think up until the last recession a decade ago, golf was was not really about golf. It was about selling real estate and filling hotels. You know, it wasn't really about the golf. Uh, and so, you know, Jack Nicholas 
positively uh, marketed his company saying, you know, we sell more real estate faster and more, you know, it's more expensive than anyone else. I mean, it, it wasn't about the golf. Uh, it was about it was about just that it was big business uh, and the, the the media up until maybe the last recession was really three publications golf week golf digest and golf magazine and that was really it uh, and you know they're relying on uh, three journalists and uh, these architects had huge power and influence uh, and so we were in a, a very small cycle the microscope was really really narrow. And that was, you know, that had mixed effects. And I think that there was an effort to push it that from a media point of view. There was certainly a sophistication in the in the media there that they were they were trying to highlight and trying to bring focus to the architecture that was that was more interesting. But there was just so little of it around. On the flip side, you jump forward in the last decade. The real estate model's pretty much dead. I mean, there's so few projects that are based on real estate. So it's all now about golf. You have to fill your golf course to make money. There have the golfers have to want to come and play the golf course that's created for it to thrive and survive. And then the golf media. What is the golf media anymore? That's a great I mean, question. I don't. You know. You are the golf media. I know. I, I used to spend you know, a few days a year and try and get one major piece or one major mention in each of the magazines. And if I could do that, if I could score one major article in one of the three in a year, that was enough to keep me relevant in the in the minds of golfers and developers and I could keep moving forward. That's no longer the case. Uh, those golf magazines, uh, I mean, their readership is being slashed. And now uh, I'm talking to a plethora, I'm afraid, uh, from your point of view, of bloggers, podcasters, right. uh, you know, media outlets, all not knowing who has power and influence and who doesn't, uh, but happy to be able to speak directly to your audience. I mean, that's the thing that's the best about it is I'm no longer talking through a filter. Uh, I, I can talk to you and you're putting it on a podcast and you're going to, unless you're going to go to a lot of time and effort to edit what I'm saying right now, that this message is going straight out. It might only be to a few hundred people or a few thousand people, but it's unfiltered. And if I do this, you know, Every other week, uh, I think the impact is probably far better than it was otherwise. Yes, and absolutely. Do you know? Have you noticed yet? I mean, I guess we've you've probably only made this or realized this media shift in the last year or two, with especially with podcasts and um, you know taking your message directly to the people. Do you sense any any payback from that? Any payoff? You know, is is it as an effective way of getting your name out in the places where you need it to be, as it was? 10 years ago when, you know, you just had to dial up those, you know, get those mentions in the big, the big three or four magazines? Uh, I'd, I'd give you two answers for that. One is, you know, how much of this is about uh, promoting my my brand, if you like, and, and uh, getting the next job that I'm competing against, you know, Bill and Tom and Gil, and how much of it is that I'm just really, really passionate about golf and my subject and I love the opportunity to debate it and to uh, put alternative thinking out there uh, you know what I really get a kick out of is 
You know, I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about the subject of golf, golf design, golf construction, golf maintenance, golf sustainability. You know, all those things are, I'm thinking about them for hours probably every day. And so occasionally I have little epiphanies and uh, hopefully pearls of wisdom where I think, oh, that's a really good point. You know, I, we should we should make sure and integrate that into our thinking moving forward. And then I like, it's fun to be able to throw it out there into the, into the world of, of overthinking golf guys and, and watch them debate it around and around. So that's kind of half the fun as well is to, is there's this very active conversation going on now that it didn't feel like it went on 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, maybe even less, the only place where any kind of debate amongst golfers was going on was uh, Golf Club Atlas. That was the only place. I don't think there was anywhere else where it was going on. No, and I felt at that time Golf Course Atlas was a valuable resource. I think it's it's its value, has, and at least the discussions aspect, has diminished slightly. But it's weird that you're talking about feedback loops. That particular place was a definite feedback loop and that's where you're talking about you know these opinions hardened and you had these these silos where people believed that that this was the type of, of architecture we should be supporting and anything outside of it was not as worthy and now we're on twitter so much and there's a huge feedback loop on social media as well. You just kind of get into these same rooms with these same thoughts and and there's often like two different sides to it. But I think what's missing and I know we're getting kind of sidetracked here, but what's missing is finding a way to take the message of golf architecture and these epiphanies that you have and and get them to people who are the vast majority of people who are in between, the people who are not on social media and who don't spend time at Golf Club Atlas, which is probably 90% of the golfer, the guys that you really need to pay attention to you. And I don't, that's where the major media has has never really fulfilled its potential as far as treating architecture like an, like an art worthy of, of serious criticism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think in the end, uh, you know, you're not going to reach... Uh, any kind of significant percentage of the golfing public out there directly. Uh, the very best way to do it is to build really great golf courses and then hope that, you know, golfer A plays it and talks to golfer B, C, D and E and they talk to golfers, you know, and you've got this snowball effect uh, where uh, a, a golf course becomes very popular. And I think that the vast majority of the time, that is through word of mouth. And, and yeah, and the magazines still do have a lot of potential. Uh, Mammoth Dunes was just awarded. I think golf. it was Golf Magazine that said it was the course of the year. That still has to have some kind of potential impact, don't you think? It does, but not like it used to. I yeah. mean, it used to pre, you know, a decade ago or 20 years ago. That was absolutely huge to, to win that award. I mean, Golf Digest, when you won Best New in Golf Digest, they mailed you an award like you'd won an Oscar. <laughs> I mean, you, you actually got something out of it. Uh, you know, a physical thing that was, I mean, now it's, you know, it's way less than it, than it, than it was. I mean, it's still really, really valuable to win it. I don't decry it at all. It's the, it's especially important to the resorts. You know, they really see massive value in it, probably more than the architect does. But it's not what it was because the, the magazines have a fraction of the readership. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I wonder, you know, how much of that readership is actually reading. 
how did you get the Mammoth Dunes job? I mean, I know there's a, there's a, a nice story uh, behind that, but I, I know that that was one case. You said earlier that you know you kind of feel like you're in the top four, but you're you know you're kind of picking up the scraps. You know, your third string behind Tom Brady and the other guy, but you did beat out. I mean, I was told that Tom Doak submitted a, a plan for the second course there, and I and Dave Axland and Rod Whitman had a proposal in, and you won the commission. So how, how did that actually come about? Mike Kaiser decided he'd have a bake-off in his uh, uh, inimitable style, uh, and he gave all three of us the opportunity to spend as much time as we wanted uh, and submit a plan on uh, anywhere we wanted within the land that they owned. And uh, Mike then had the center lines cleared of the three layouts that were done, (laughs) and he walked them with a group of his pals just you know, average everyday golfers. And they walked it with a little card and a pencil and they scored each hole in the raw land out of 10. And then they added up the uh, the scores and they did it blind. Uh, I don't know if Mike knew which layout he was walking. He may have done, but I know that the others in the group did not. Uh, and then they added up the scores and our layout won. <laughs> I mean, there's probably more nuance to the story, but that's basically it. And I think that's exactly what Mike did. I mean, he's he is very matter of fact. So he scored those holes out of 10, which is, you know, an incredibly unfair way to do it. Uh, and Tom would probably agree. I'm not sure how the hell else you do it at that stage. But, you know, I'll give but you if a If you're going to set story. up that kind of competition, yeah, you've got to yeah, have well, a methodology. He, he does it with everything. I mean, he, he does it with everything. It's a simple scoring out of 10. I finished the 16th hole at Mammoth Dunes, and it was photographed a lot. It's been in a lot of magazines. It's very photogenic. It's really mm-hmm. fun to play. It's a slightly oblique par three. You're kind of blocked out by a huge dune on the front right corner yeah. uh, of the hole. And if the pin's sort of front or middle, you've got to play over that blind dune and then use the back slope to get the ball down to the pin, unless you're going to dead aim it and try and stop it on the green. So... I went back to it with Mike after we'd finished it and it was being photographed and people were saying how much they loved it. And I said, Mike, well, what, what do you score this hole out of 10? He said, oh, you know, I, I think it's really, really good. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. I said, what did you give it in the raw dirt? Oh, yeah. I didn't like it so much then. Wow. <laughs> so quite often the the eyes of the designer looking at something that is not obvious is the very crux of it becoming something really cool. You know, uh, otherwise we wouldn't be doing our job. Oh, you're, you're actually looking to be sort of counterintuitive a lot of the time to make the golf interesting. If you if it's just obvious, if every hole is playing up through uh, a canyon with, uh, you know, dunes on both sides and it's a, a half pipe, that's that might be kind of cool, but it's kind of predictable. It's much more interesting when it's uh, it's running against the contour and against your your perceptions. That's what makes golf that much more interesting. You go play those courses in Scotland and Ireland, and they do that all the time. The golf hole goes often exactly where you wouldn't think it would go, and that's why it's interesting. And doing that in a so-called blind tasting uh, with the owners who's going to pick a client to build the golf course, and you're building something that's not readily obvious because it's not grasped, is taking a chance. It is taking a chance. And, you know, the the three guys that pitched, you know, I, there's probably a, 
you know, a little bit of a crapshoot in there as to who gets it. You know, I think what helped me was Mike wasn't really in love with Tom's course at Streamsong. Uh, he thought the greens were wild. Uh, and he was in love with Gamble Sands that I had completed only a year or so earlier in Washington State. And so he at least was in more in favor of what I was currently doing. Uh, and so I think he knew that based on the routing that he was looking at, I'd be leaning towards something more like Gamble Sands, maybe amped up a little bit more than Gamble is, but along those lines. So when you saw the Mammoth Dunes property or the section of the the acreage that you chose for your golf course, you, did you know at that time you were going to kind of apply the Gamble Sands philosophy of width and playability to that site? Did you know that going in or, or did you carry yeah. that with you once you saw the property at Sand Valley? No, I knew that going in. I mean, I, I knew that going in that, that you know, that's what uh, – that. The, the logic that we brought to Gamble Sands is, a, is an incredibly powerful logic for golfers. I mean, it, it seems to be like, uh, you know, crack. The, the, when you change the dynamic, uh, as I've done over the last decade, uh, the golfers really react well to it. They, they really, really enjoy golf where there's the opportunity to be aggressive off the tee and recover around the green and use slopes. Uh, if you can be on a sand site and be able to grow grasses where the ball will roll, to be able to create slopes that they can actually use, all of those ingredients uh, come together in a very powerful package. I mean, I, I knew that the golfers would really enjoy playing what we could lay down on that piece of land. I had absolutely no doubt that they would enjoy it. So the trick then was to figure out, you know, how to get Mike to pick me uh, and then make it as visually uh, stunning as possible. It's a public uh, resort golf course that, you know, people are driving three, four, five hours to get there and paying a fair penny. So uh, they need to feel like it's, it's matching their expectations. I think one, another reason that he, he went with you, Mike Kaiser, that is, went with you is because it was a departure from the course that was already built. I think, basically, I think what people notice between the two courses is that Sand Valley course is more challenging and Mammoth Dunes, as you just described, is, is more appealing, which is the perfect setup for a, a resort when you have 36 holes. You don't want them to be the same. And I think he might have seen, at least in one of the other proposals, something that was maybe a little too similar to the existing Sand Valley course. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like your logic, uh, but I'm not sure if the thinking is that, that that is a tiny point on what I was saying earlier. That I think that there's there's sometimes there's some overthinking, mm-hmm. and that might be one right <laughs> I've, there. I've been accused of that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not sure. The original Sand Valley course wasn't even finished when we started construction, uh-huh. and it wasn't even near built when Mike picked me. Right. So uh, Mike didn't know how it was going to spin out at that point. You know, when we turned up, uh, Mike and his two sons were saying, you know, that Sand Valley was probably the number one course in the world. You know, in their opinion, what they saw uh, Bill and Ben building in front of them, they thought that it was unmatchable. Hmm. Uh, And so we were starting from a position where, you know, it They've, they've built their, their best course ever, 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 and, and we're going to try and match it. So I don't think Mike thought 
you know, he wasn't thinking, you know, it's harder than the one I'm going to build or I don't know. I'm not sure that there was that. It wasn't there yet. You know, it was still being built. Nobody you, really knew. Do you have a do you have a sense of the the feedback now that both courses are in existence? Does do, do they still think that Sand Valley is the best course in the world or do they think Mammoth Dunes is the best course in the world? Like where did, I mean, I know they're pleased with it because of the the um how busy the resort is, but do you get a sense of like their personal preference? Uh, no, and I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, it's the genius that the the Mike Kaiser has and the boys, I think, are following quickly in his path. You know, they've created another resort where golfers will debate which one they like better. And that is, I mean, that is so amazingly good. I mean, it's great for golf. You know, for every golfer that prefers Sand Valley, there's another golfer that prefers Mammoth Dunes. And I I am positive already that there'll be another golfer that prefers Sedge Valley, uh, if that's the final name that Tom mm-hmm. does. So Mike's done an amazingly good job of creating golf courses that all golfers will play and no golfers, that there will not be a an easy favorite amongst those three. There will continue to be debate, just like there is at Bandon. I, I meet an amazing amount of people that tell me, I think Bandon June, the, f- the first course, is the best course. You know, and uh, there are just as many that think it's Pacific or Old MacDonald or Trails. You know, and even people that say the Preserve, which is a par three, is the best course there. So uh, if you're a resort owner, as Mike is, that is by far the best. You know, it, uh, I'm assuming, although I don't know for sure, I'm assuming that if you're at Pinehurst, you want to play number two before anything else. Yeah. If you're at the old course, you want to play the old course before anything else. Yeah, if you're at Bandon Dunes, I'll play any of them. Yeah. Okay, now's as good a time as any. I'm going to jump in really quick here and remind you, if you haven't yet, please go to iTunes and give the show a star rating. You can also leave a comment. That means a lot. It's quick. It's a few clicks. It's your way of showing that you support the show and like what we do here. And if you're on social media and you see me post a new episode of the show, bump it, like it, retweet it, leave a comment. I appreciate all of you. And now let's get back to David McClay Kid. So what... Mammoth Dunes has really done, in addition to being an excellent golf course and, and provide some highly entertaining and beautiful golf and golf vistas, is introduce, or not introduce, but almost take the, the, your concept of, of extreme width to its, almost to its logical conclusion. Do you feel like another, this is... Uh, another, uh, another misconception. Uh, another one that I would say is almost fake news. You don't, th- you don't think that that is what's being talked about? No, because Mammoth Dunes uh, is 107 acres of turf. Bandon Dunes is 110. Gamble Sands is 110. Mm-hmm. Sand Valley is 97. Well, it's certainly so, a, it's certainly a conversation that I, that I've had with with people and our other architects as well. Is just and you know not necessarily a pro or con an observation that you know th- this trend toward width and playabilities, you know, probably started it with sand hills and but really, you know, with band and dunes kind of expanded the concept and the stream song and other places. It's a very it's getting back to that that essence of the length and playability and not being prescriptive in how you set up a golf course, letting players find their own route with positive and negative ramifications of each route. And Mammoth Dunes with hundred yard wide fairways is maybe the widest golf course that we've seen. Uh, it's not, I, I promise you it's no wider than Old MacDonald. 
Well, that's that's another part. Of, that's another factor in 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 the trend toward toward width. What what I'm getting at is, uh, you, I know you don't. It sounds like you don't ag- agree with my premise, and that's fine. But have if 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 it is true, do you think the reactions keeping on this this theme of art and how art changes is the reaction a retraction, starting to go back in the other direction, getting a little smaller, a little tighter, a little more. Uh, demanding off the tee? I, I think it's not that I don't agree with you. It's that I think the the fact that Mike called it Mammoth Dunes, you know, reinforced uh, the fact that the course is wide off the tee. I would say that the subtlety that's that's being missed by the pundits that want to talk about the the massive width at Mammoth Dunes, first off, it's not that much more massive than a number of other courses. But here's the subtlety. I worked really hard to make sure you can see that width off the tee. And that's what other courses don't do. So the only way I can give you confidence off the tee is if I actually show you that the fairway is 100 yards wide. If I show you 30 yards worth of fairway and then hide the other 70, you're not going to be confident. You'll be nervous, even though you know, even though the caddy tells you, don't worry, there's plenty of room over that hill to the right. Mm-hmm. You're still going to see a 30-yard wide fairway. You're still going to swing accordingly. So I worked very hard to lay out those golf holes in such a way that you see massive width. And that width isn't much more massive, isn't any real wider than a number of other golf courses. I can, you know, I, I know it because I've scaled it off. But it makes a huge difference to the golfer on the tee. They feel confident. And confidence is the biggest limiter to the golf swing. The, your, the human body knows exactly how to swing a golf club. It doesn't need to be told. It just needs the confidence to be able to do it. And golf course architects for 100 plus years have been doing everything they can to tell the, the inner golfer to be scared. Don't swing it. You know, you're going to lose this golf ball. This is all going to be bad. And those, those subliminal messages all transfer into the golfer. And they're a legitimate part of golf course architecture. They were just one that I'm not sure are as enjoyable as thinking off the tee that I can actually swing with confidence and put it where I'm aiming. And then from there, I can actually play in. I mean, the, the biggest limiter to having fun or one of many limiters to having fun on the golf course is screwing up off the tee because you're out of the golf hole. And searching for your ball. I would put that in number one, even if you find yeah. it. But, you know, that's the least that's my least favorite thing to do in golf. And probably most people would agree. Yeah. You, you know, take I, that I, off played, the table. I was in Hawaii the weekend before Christmas uh, and I played four rounds and a couple of them, I, I just wasn't feeling it. And, you know, you, you let go of that driver just a little bit and it's off into the lava. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you going to do now? You know, you're going to walk this hole because I'm playing with, you know, low handicap golfers. I can't say, oh, I'll have another mulligan. I mean, you're out of it. You're done. You lost that hole. So I'll drop one and play it, and it's lane three, but I know I'm done. I mean, I, I'm now I'm three down, and I'm headed to the next tee. There's no way out. Yeah. So, you know, giving a golfer confidence and getting him off the tee safely, if not into a good position, uh, is key to the enjoyment of the game. And that's where, you know, a lot of those old Scottish golf courses, the old course would be my perfect example. Hard to lose a golf ball. You know, it just is. Yeah. Uh, and, 
once you're in play, at least, at least you're in play, at least you're hunting your ball and you're thinking, well, okay, I got to hit a six iron, uh, over the top of a bunker and stop it in, you know, seven steps before the pin. Chances of you actually doing that, a hundred to one. But there's still a chance. Mm hmm. I mean, and you, and I know you did this on purpose, and I, I was, I've been to Mammoth and played it twice. And there are places that you, a good player, will want to be. You know, there are great classic strategic concepts within that width, like on, uh, like number three. You know, you really need to challenge that inside sandwash to get up on that upper fairway level to at least think about going for the green or have a good view with your second shot it's a par five you know and if you kind of bail out to the big fairway to the right you go down in that hollow and you can't see anything on your next shot you're fine you play it but you're out of position number two you know is another classic course where you're if you want to have a good look at that green you've got to take an aggressive line off the tee across that diagonal sand pit sand cavern um number nine is kind of a similar concept so there are a lot, a lot of great classic strategic features that you've built into the course all the width notwithstanding. And what you're saying is, you know, you've just taken the lost ball out of play and given people a chance to hit a bad drive but still be in the hole, which I think there's I, a, it's a I, beautiful thing. I think there could be a degree of, of uh, you know, elitism in the conversation sometimes. If I'd have built uh, Mammoth Dunes and I gave you all the same strategy that exists on that golf course, don't change a thing. The greens, tees, uh, fairway uh, uh, aggressive lines are all exactly as they are today, but I build the fairways thirty yard wide, thirty yards wide. What what happens then? What what gets said? What where does the conversation go? I'm asking you. Nothing changes. Just the exact same golf course with thirty yard wide fairways down the aggressive line. I, you know, I, one thing I don't think there'd be as much conversation about it. I don't think it would strike a, a core. It would not resonate with as many people because it would, wouldn't be that different than types of things that have been built over and over and over again throughout the decades. I mean, I think, well, I think there'd still be oodles of strategy. I think there, oh, no, I'm not saying be, they're not, they're, I'm not saying there wouldn't yeah. be a strategy for sure. There's a strategy. That's Pete Dye. I mean, Pete Dye doesn't build the 80 wide, 80 yard wide fairways. I mean, he builds often, not all the time. You can't put them in a complete box, but you know, his builds golf courses with borders on them and you have to play to strategic points and it's highly strategic. It's some of the most strategic golf that's ever been presented, but it's not forgiving. There, there you go. That is the word, right? Forgiving. What, what is forgiveness? I would say forgiveness is you don't get to score. And what is scoring? You know, it's less than par. That's scoring. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is, uh, I'm going to give you the chance to recover to par maybe, but you're going to have to hit a really good second shot. Or I'm going to give you the chance to make bogey. So there's forgiveness. So you, my hope was that what we've built on the last three or four courses we've done are highly strategic uh, courses that demand great ball striking, great course management to score. Mm -hmm. But sans that, there's forgiveness. You, we're, we're having mercy on you when you make a mistake. We're giving you width in the fairway to easily find the ball and plot a path to a certain pin position. But now you might have to go defensive. Now I can't be aggressive because I'm out of position. Now I have to play to the back of the green and accept a long putt or to the front edge and chip it on. You know, there you, you're now 
you've gone from on the tee thinking I can score and be aggressive to now I have to be defensive and make sure this isn't a double. Mm-hmm. I sense I sense in our discussion here, and I didn't I, I wasn't trying to be uh, provoke you. I sense that you maybe have listened to this line of, of questioning a little too often, and you're frustrated with it, or because you don't oh, think I, that it's being uh, accepted or t- or debated the right way. Uh, yeah, I probably am a little uh, that it's uh, there's a sort of simplistic overview uh, by people that uh, th- should probably be thinking harder that that the width alone uh, is creating a, a golf course that's that I, that easy and I don't think that that's true at all uh, there's still challenge there plenty of it if you want to score and the width is about forgiveness and I, I'm not I'm not in the slightest upset I, I'm merely uh, you know, provoking and, and reacting to, uh, so that we have a spirited conversation. That's it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I do think that there is, I mean, it's an important debate to have because whether you agree with it or not, that is the discussion that's taking place. And, and it's not a, it's not even a critique, but it's a, it's, I think it's a curiosity is like, what, what is too wide? And it doesn't have to be mammoth that we're talking about. It could be Streamsong Black. It could be another course. But what? where is that limit? And if we if we touch that limit, do we need to start, as an art form, does it need to start going back the other direction? So I'll ask you, do you feel, is this a period for you? Or do you feel like this is where you're going to be indefinitely as a, as, as a mindset, as a designer? You know, we did a private club in LA that opened in January called Rolling Hills Country Club. Mm-hmm. It has 80 acres of grass, full stop. The entire golf course is 80 acres. Yeah. it's So that's about an average amount of sod, you know, maybe a slightly higher than average, but not that much higher. But other than that, we implemented every part of the thinking that Gamble Sands has and Mammoth, June ha- Mammoth Dunes has on that same golf course but with 80 acres, because that's all we had. The The site is not Im- immense, you know, huge site, uh, and you're growing Bermuda grass. But other than that, everything else was uh, implemented. Uh, the fairways are as wide as we could get them. They're 60, 80 yards wide, but there's still 80 acres total grass. Mm-hmm. And the players love it. The members absolutely love it. I haven't had a single member yet say that they don't have a really good time when they're out there because the same logic is applied. So I would say that for sure, I think that my uh, approach to golf today is the same as the approach to golf I had early in my career, and I've rediscovered it. I understand it much better now, and I don't intend to change that. In terms of the actual grass coverage on a particular golf course, I think that's very site-specific. Uh, Mammoth Dunes, you're growing fescue in a cool climate in the summertime where water is cheap uh, and there's no real cost to it. So it didn't hurt anyone to to build that much grass. If we were in a different climate uh, where water is a precious resource and uh, the maintenance budget is trying to be as little as possible, we would do it with less. Uh, but we would certainly still be aiming to get you confident off the tee and aggressive and give you some relief if right. you screw up. 
is a can a golf course be too wide? How does that work? You know, can a golf course be too much fun then? You know, where where does too wide? Uh, where is that? You know, all the way out to my peripheral vision. That's kind of what old McDonald does. It's what the old course does. It's all grass. Mm-hmm. You know, muscle bra. And the whole thing's grass. So I'm not sure that there's such a thing as too wide. You know, you go play the old courses on the west coast of Scotland in the summertime. The the rough is dried right out. So the, there's there's no limit to the width because uh, you can find it so easily. I'm not sure what the uh, pr- where that conversation goes about too much width. I think what the uh, actual question is is uh, when is the st- when does the width? If the width were to negate strategy, that would be a real problem. Correct. I mean, if you ended up just playing a golf hole where it's a hundred yards wide and there's no defense whatsoever it's just a tee at one end and a green at the other and some randomly placed bunkers that are meaningless to a good golfer that is too much width that's just boring there's just nothing there but you know i i would never build that right and i don't think i don't think people are well maybe some people are but i don't think that's what's being suggested i mean mammoth dunes is one of the most entertaining courses that you can play that one of the most entertaining courses that I've ever played. And I think most people agree with that. The fun factor is off the charts and it's because it's built into the design. You know, I, uh, way back in my late twenties, I just finished band and I was probably 29, 30 years old. I was asked by, I can't even remember who to speak at a conference at Glen Eagles in Scotland about architecture. And I found the the speech that I gave, you know, 20 something years later, almost 25 years later. And I found it, you know, a year ago uh, in amongst some papers. And the premise of my talk 25 years ago was to design a strategic golf hole from tee to green that that challenged a good golfer to make birdie. And then on top on top of that, once that hole was locked in, was to provide as much width as possible, as much forgiveness as possible to, you know, the rabbit rather than the tiger. Because mm-hmm. he's and, not looking to score. Is and is and you feel like you've you've come back to that in Mammoth Dunes. That's what you're telling yeah. me. Is that- and Gamble and Rolling Hills and a number of other courses that you haven't heard of uh, that aren't in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that the premise is really really good. You you offer up uh, a strategic line to the golfer. You know, if you want to score, you got to thread the needle right here. You got to put it in this position, and you got to figure out how to get it close to the pin on your next shot. Assuming we're talking about a par four, and make the putt. And the golfer sees that that challenge and tries to make it. And given width and uh, taking fear away from him, he is able to make that uh, ask that more often and have that more more fun chasing the the score, chasing birdie. And if he doesn't make it, he now goes into a slightly defensive mode. But he knows that if he could just recover the next one. You know, he makes par and, and nothing was lost. And they're on to the next hole to try and birdie that one. Uh, so much more fun than playing golf in a defensive mode all the time. I mean, I, I, you and I obviously play a lot of golf. How many courses do you play where you're playing defensively on almost every tee? And how, many, how much fun is that really? 
it's much more fun to be aggressive. And if the course and my game can allow that, I'm going to have more fun. I always, I can, and that's the, that's the, <laughs> I think about my own experiences. And when I, I live outside of Atlanta and the golf courses here are just dreadful. I mean, there's hardly anything worth talking about. And so many of them are built on land. It doesn't support good golf. They're narrow. One or two sides is dead. If you get off the, off the corridor. Um, and it's, it's just not that interesting. And I play, I rarely play around here, but when I go to stream song or I went to sand Valley or when I go to Bandon, my, uh, first of all, I love it. it. It just, I'm filled with, passion and energy and i'm turned on i'm switched on the whole time but i i play better my scores are dramatically better at these these golf resorts and it's because you know and i think that the width and the playability factor has so much to do with that you know you're just you're finding your ball and hitting it again i think because the other thing is that so much of golf you know we it's funny how we talk about golf being you know 90 percent mental and 10 percent in your head so we as golfers know that what's going on in our head is the vast driver that it's it's the key to the experience and and the score that we end up shooting and so as a golf course architect i've tried to 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 find that i've tried to affect that uh, your your reaction in your own head uh, and how do i i think golf course architecture for a hundred years has tried to do it in a negative way mm-hmm. how do i make the golfer fearful how do i cheat him how do i make him think that it's shorter or longer or steeper or shallower than it really is you know the basic tenant of mckenzie's uh, architecture was to trick the golfer into right. perceiving the wrong thing mm-hmm. uh, so i challenged that a decade ago and i thought to myself what happens if i kind of go the opposite way and i i give you confidence and i give i support your preconceived ideas that yeah there is a safe slope over here yeah that that is a contour you could hit and roll it towards the green yeah this green will hold your ball if you hit it over here you know what happens then Mm -hmm. Uh, and what i see is golfers have a lot of fun that's and that should be the the bottom line. That's why we play. And as long as there's you know, there's inherent challenge into golf, no matter what you present, you can present a 200 yard wide fairway. But getting for most people, getting the club on the ball and getting the ball airborne and feeling solid contact is a challenge in and of itself. So well, you're, you're a low. I'm guessing you're a low handicap golfer. Yeah, as am I. So I'm a six handicap. Yeah, that's about what I, I am. I, I look at Mammoth Dunes, pick a hole, any hole, the second hole. That fairway is probably 80 yards wide. I stand on the tee. I don't see 80 yards. I see a little pot bunker in the middle of that fairway mm-hmm. and three or four yards to the right-hand side of it. Yeah. And if I'm standing there with my driver, I want to hit a low draw if I can that skirts the right-hand side of that bunker and sets me up to get into a green that's pitching away from me. Yes. It's the only shot that will make birdie. If I hit a weak three-wood driver that's left of that bunker, anything left of that bunker, I'm coming in over the top of a shape with an eight iron and trying to stop it on a downslope. Impossible. Really, really very difficult, if not impossible. So the only shot that matters is the pot bunker out there and staying a few yards to the right of it. Don't go in it. Yeah. And that that's incredibly good fun and that has nothing to do with the width nothing the width is only giving me confidence it has nothing to do with scoring 
Well, it, it's it, it's for the twenty for the twenty handicap player. It's giving them a, a way to get around the golf course. They're not looking at that pop bunker. They're looking at carrying it over the the wash and getting it on grass, and then figuring out what to do with the next shot. And that's great. That's, right. that, that's what that's what it's there for. I want to ask you this, since we're talking about specific holes. What's the what's the strategy? For you on seven, the par five, you know, you're teeing off kind of over that cavern. It's a blind tee shot. And if you don't, you know, you want to play it up the right, but if you don't hit it far enough, you're up on that shelf and you don't get the roll down the hill. But if you get the roll down the big slope, you're kind of almost rolling laterally. What's what's the play there? Just hit it as far as you can for this for the scoring play. What's the scoring play? Well, the scoring play is to get there in two and see if you can make eagle. And is it and, it's, so, and it's best just to get it as far down the fairway any way possible off the tee. The 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 key to that hole is the giant sand gulch, to call it that cuts completely across where your second shot would ideally like to go. Right. So that is the what's in your head if you've played that hole, you know that that's there. So if you were to lay up on your tee shot, if you put the if you just hit a safe drive and you put it on top of the ridge, where is your second shot going to go? Because if you wanted to hit your second shot to, let's say, 100, 120, so that you're in wedge range, you can't. There's a big sandy wash right in the way. It's completely right there. You and you can't, can't really there. squeeze anything up to the right side of that. It's just you not could a hit smart it way plan. right. You could have hit it. You could hit it right and put yourself at 120. But now you're coming into that green diagonally. Mm-hmm. So, and that's okay. You probably could easily make par. But you're not going to make birdies and eagles. So if you want to, if you're on that tee and you know that hole, you need to. If you hit it too far right off the tee, you'll stay up high. If you hit it too far left, you won't get the big roll. So you need to find a spot that that only you know, guess based on how hard you hit your driver, that will crest the hill and run down the other side. And then that could put you in range to go for it too. There's a reason I didn't put any bunkers around that green. There's nothing. It's all grass. So it was to make sure that if you got within range, if you're, if I'm 250 out from that green, I'm going for it. Because mm-hmm. even if I miss the green, I'm probably putting or chipping from a, a, a soft lie around that green. There's, there's nothing to prevent me. There's, there's no, nothing that's going to gobble my ball and cost me a stroke. So... That's one where I'm going to pound it twice. You know, I'm going to hit driver yeah. three wood uh, and try and get it on that green or really close in yeah. two. Neither time I played that hole did I hit my best driver of the day, and I was in that no go zone where I would just had to lay up kind of short of that cross bunker and you know hit something a little longer and then I wanted to. But you know that's just that's the way the hole is designed. I didn't hit a good enough drive, and I didn't. Yeah. I don't have that. Sh- I don't have that <clears throat> big three wood shot to get it over that. So I was kind of, I was kind of scratching my head and thinking think, that you know I'm not sure what I should do here. Here, here's another thing that uh, you know in the world we live in is judgments are drawn incredibly quickly. You know, you, you played Mammoth Dunes in its very first, not even full season. It didn't open until June first, uh-huh. and you played it twice in uh, October. Yeah, in October, but you've still played it once more than most others, uh, and your opinion is made, and yet. It's a fescue golf course that's only open in the summertime. So that fescue is, to, to say it's an infant is even overstating it. That grass is so new, it's ridiculous. The, the, the ball is supposed to roll, and it won't roll for at least 
three seasons until that fescue naps and you've got a quarter right. to a half inch of thatch mm-hmm. and the weather's beat down on that sand, you know, for three years. So I would say that mammoth dunes won't be the course I intended until 2021. I don't think my opinion is formed. I enjoyed it. I love the golf course. I no, mean, no, if I, my opinion like was that I had fun, I, I liked it, then, then yeah. No, but, no, I, I, I'm just saying that for... No, that's a good point. To think about the, the, you know, the development of fescue turf, that's something that we don't talk about very often because these these courses open, I say these courses, but you know, around the world, these dunesy sand-based courses open and people flock and rush to them and they do they do make some sort of assessment of them you know i would say most of the raiders get to stream song black you know in its first season or first season and a half and all of a sudden you know there it is number 35 on the you know best of list or whatever and you know that course is going to evolve and change as time goes on as well these courses that we're talking about all require time to to settle in and evolve uh, and Mammoth Dunes, there are so many slopes that, that we created for players to use and they, they aren't really capable of running a ball yet because the course isn't old enough. So give it another, you know, each season it's going to be twice as good as the season before for the first three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, you know, smart play is going to be to hit that low seven iron chaser and have it roll right up to the pin. And Americans are not used to playing that. Uh, you know that that's something. Hopefully, we'll we'll see perpetuate a little bit more. You know, it, it still amazes me that you've got all these golfers at Bandon that have their sixty degree wedge in their bag. Right. <laughs> so, but hopefully, we'll get there. Uh, we're we're moving it east. You mentioned the the frame of your career right now, and when I when I was thinking about this, it, your career to me. And again, you may you may not agree with this premise, but it, it almost seems uh, Dickensian. You know, you started off. Your father was very well known in the golf business. You went into the, the trade, not exactly the same, but still in the golf course business. Uh, a, a wealthy patron tapped you in a very unlikely manner to do something extraordinary. You found early fame. You capitalized on the fame. You kind of went or perceived to go wayward at some point. Were rebuked in a way that not many of your peers had been rebuked and sort of out in the cold came back with gamble sands had a huge success the same wealthy patron taps you again to do another remarkable course spectacular success and you're you know you're you're back in the in the glory in the sun again Um, i don't know if that's the way it feels like to you but but for having such for being not a not a you know, you're not an 80 year old architect. You're a young guy still. You've your career has had these these crests and and ebbs and flows to it in a way that many many other of your contemporaries haven't experienced. That's probably true, Dickensian. I like it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? In the end, what what the hell is it all about? You know, it's you. We're building golf courses. You know, they're they're people have pleasure from them and and. You know, my my career and life, I want to be as full and rich and as explorative as I can possibly make it. So I'm not sure I regret anything. I I was learning from everything. You know, maybe that early success uh, was too early uh, and I hadn't had the chance to 
pay my dues, to to learn, to to figure stuff out on my own. Uh, and so I did it in a very sharp spotlight. I I I wouldn't change a thing. I, I, the courses that I received uh, less than stellar reviews are still much loved. You know, if you take the Castle course. The castle course at St Andrews is the second busiest course on the links next to the old course. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, Tom's zero in his book uh, was petulant. You know, it was, you know, that was unnecessary. Uh, the course has been extremely successful. You know that. So yes, from an architectural point of view, for a, an intellectual point of view, I've I haven't stayed exactly true to a single premise in my career i've i started in one place and i wandered into another and then wandered back to where i started started uh the golf courses throughout have still been much played they're just different they're, they're not the same uh there's no comparison between tedro in uh, oregon where i am now and gamble sands mm -hmm. the the two courses uh, uh share a common architect and they share a very uh, minimalist look but architecturally strategically they're very different you know tethero does not allow for uh, recovery it's it's extremely challenging if, if you can shoot a par round there you are an awfully good golfer you've got some real skills uh, but if you shoot a par round at gamble sands you probably less from shots out there I haven't played Castle Course, but I was I was reading up on some of the things that you've written about it, and, and in some ways, it sounds like one of the most interesting concepts that I could come up with, or that you could come up with, and and you described it variously as almost like abstract art. And you'll correct me; I know you'll correct me if I have this this wrong, but it was a very flat potato field, totally flat, with nothing there. And instead of like figuring out how you were going to route the course and then build the golf holes, you you and your shapers went out and just kind of messed it up, just like pushed shit around and got it all funky looking. And then, and you had, an, I'm sure you had an idea of where the, what the routing was, but, and then individually decided, okay, well, what features can we implement to make it look like it was, it was natural, you know, the ground actually looked like this and you, you described it as an almost irrational approach to building. And I had this conversation with Ron Witten last year and he said that he thought that would be the most extraordinary thing to try to do with a golf course is just have some guys with bulldozers go out and just practice who didn't know how to run them, practice, move things around, and then just use that as the base for a golf course. And it's, that sounds almost kind of like uh, similar to what you did at the Castle course, which is a fascinating idea. That's exactly what we did. We we said to ourselves, uh, I, my uh, uh, senior guy back on that project was a, an architect called Paul Kimber, who's now on his own. Mm -hmm. uh, and Paul and I said, what, what, where would we have liked to have started? If we'd have turned up on this site and this was a great site, what would it have looked like? And we talked about, you know, well, it would have, it would have been, you know, untouched by farming, and it would have been rumpled, and and, and it would have looked like it was part of the shoreline, and yeah, uh, you know, we had these long conversations about what we wished it had been, and then we said, okay, how do we get it back to what we wished it had been? What do we do in order to do that? Well, if we engineer a bunch of grading plans and have an earthworks contractor 
shape it. You know, that's not what we wanted, right? We wanted that random irregularity of nature where we tried to massage a golf course into it. So how do we get there? Uh, and that was our our process. You know, how, how do we create a process that delivers us the site we wish we'd started with? And I'm not sure that the conversation you and Ron had is so far-fetched. You know, I, I, I wouldn't negate doing it again on a site like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I would come at it a little differently, but I'm, I'm not sure that you still couldn't produce something really, really interesting uh, by creating a process of work that creates the site you wish you'd started with. What do you think, the for those who, who had a, a you know, negative critique of Castle Course, what is it exactly that that either they were talking about or that they didn't get about that? Uh, I think that the, the fair criticism uh, for the Castle Course is the Greens were extremely rejective. You know, they're, they're, the, the golf ball is just shunned uh, on many of the holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once shunned, it's put into positions where recovery is extremely challenging to almost impossible at some t- at some points. And that's why a lot of adjustments have been made. Uh, if I were to, to cruelly look back at what I would do differently, you know, which I almost hate to admit, you know, I would, I'd make the greens a little more receptive uh, and I would allow uh, the opportunity of recovery around those greens. Other than that, I don't think I'd change a thing. Uh, you know, th- those are the the key things on a course-wide basis that we probably dialed up a little too hard. Right. Uh, th- those just those two things. And so, when you look at the courses that we're doing now in the last decade, the the greens are a lot uh, gentler. Certainly not flat, but they're they're gentler, and there's a lot of opportunity to recover from around those greens. I figure once you're recovering around the green, your scoring opportunities probably passed. <laughs> so um, at that point, well, I'm you talked to earlier about you. you know the the concept of boundaries and 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 what you do as as an artist, and it it seems well, it doesn't seem at that course in particular you read at that phase in your career where you were exploring your boundaries and you were trying not to do something that was going to be going back irrelevant it was going to be memorable you didn't want it to be boring you wanted it to make a statement and that must have been disappointing to get that criticism because anytime you're putting yourself out there as an artist as a designer as an entrepreneur you're putting yourself out there and you know you're taking a chance i'm sure you must have known this was a big leap and a big chance and there were many many logical and economic reasons why you made the choices you made but you're still you know you're laying it out there it's a new art form in a way a new avenue for design and then to have it criticized it, it did how does that how did that make you feel at the time even though so many people do like the course and play it, but is that, that's got to be a hard thing to do as an artist to lay it out there. Finally, somebody's taken a chance and then to have it rebuked in such a public manner. Even though it's really painful sometimes, you can't, you've got you to gotta learn how to have broad shoulders because every single thing, you know, the, what we do is, is 
experienced by so many people, what you hope at least, and they're all going to have an opinion. That's part of the fun of playing a new golf course, right? Is to say, well, I like this about it and I didn't like that and I loved it or I hated it. That's just part of it. Uh, I would say that the castle course uh, did much as I expected. It it polarized opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I said going into it to anyone who'd listen that, there was no winning this. It was a flat site on an extremely controversial project. Uh, a lot of people n- did not think that the Lynx Trust should be building a new golf course at all. Uh, and so the project was highly controversial in a highly controversial place on a site that wasn't going to yield a minimalist creation on sand dunes. It was a flat field in heavy soils. So there was no winning it. So uh, I decided that we were going to create something uh, that would polarize opinions. But guess what? It was going to create opinions. It wasn't going to be blah. It wasn't going to be a pass by. You were going to have to react to it emotionally one way or another, whether you absolutely loved it or absolutely hated it. I was going to get an opinion out of you one way or another. And I imagine that at this point, that's very satisfying to you. Because you did that, you accomplished that, and now you're distant from it enough, you know, if that any, any of the, you know, the sting might, might wear off, and you achieved your goal of creating something, a true piece of art that, you know, a, like we said earlier, like a true, n- nothing's great art if everybody agrees that it's great. It's just That's normal. Exactly, absolutely right. Absolutely right. If you build something, like I said at the very beginning, if you build something that's just the olive garden of golf courses, what is the point? That's just a business. I, I don't want to do that. I, I want to build stuff that pushes me and the people that, that I work with and challenges the golfers who come and play it. I mean, challenge them artistically as much as from a sporting point of view, that they, they have an opinion about it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I played it and I, I felt something. You know, I, I, I see that the business I'm in is like writing books or maving, making music or movies. You know, you're, you're trying to provoke your audience in some way, shape or form. You're trying to get something out of them. And if, if they switch off halfway through, that's like the biggest insult of all. <laughs> uh, I definitely don't want that. How, how critical are you? And I know you don't write books about it, but how critical are you of your peers work when you go and play other people's golf courses? Do you do you always look at it for, with a critical eye, or are you sure. more accepting of, yeah. of what no, you find? Of course, you're looking at it with a critical eye. Of course, you are. You're, I'm a golfer, so and I'm a golfer who's got a lot more, you know, hopefully, knowledge than than most others. So I'm looking at you know how they rooted it, or how they built it, or how it's being maintained, or the choices of grasses that were made. Uh, you know, the opportunity to score or the opportunity to recover. I'm, I'm looking at all those things. I think first off, I'm look, if, if I perceive that it's a, a worthy rival to the stuff I'm doing, uh, I'm looking to learn as much as I can. What did they do that, that makes this so good? What lessons could I learn and take away? Maybe not on a micro basis, but on a global basis. You know, uh, what, what overall things did they do really really well you know i I, i've played sand hills a bunch of times i I love it i go look at that and i look at how contrary the golf course falls against the contours you know there's very few holes out there that are predictable that that flow down through between the dunes you know everything's crossing diagonally 
you know, I look at, uh, I was lucky enough to go out to New Zealand and play Tariiti mm-hmm. uh, that Tom Doak opened. And I looked at that and thought, well, you know, the naturalness that, that uh, he and Brian Slonick created on that is breathtaking, absolutely beautiful. You know, the, the visuals of that golf course are almost second to none. Uh, and so I look at these things and I first, I probably try and push away the, the, the green-eyed monster uh, that wants to be jealous of some one of my peers' successes. And I try and push that away immediately, and I try and see the very best in it and what could I learn from it. Not always possible. Sometimes you play, it, play a course and they truly stink, and then there's no <laughs> way past it. Right. So those, that's kind of when the first impression can be correct sometimes. Yeah. So when you look at your, when you look at, like, let's take Bill Core and Tom Doak specifically, aside, aside from enjoying when they do a great course that connects with you, like Tara Edi or Sand Hills, and you notice the, how the routing flows and the the movements and rhythms of the golf course, can you look at them side by side? And because I, I don't know that I can do this. I've played a number of their courses, but I don't know that I can tell what they're doing as a, as designers. Like how does Bill Core design and build greens? Like what's his philosophy about contouring uh, on the green surrounds versus Tom Doak? Is Tom Doak doing something different? It's difficult for a non-architect, I think, to look at these because the properties are so spectacular. Not all, but many of the properties they work on are so spectacular. Tom is the poster child of minimalism. You know, he really is. I mean, he and his crew do nothing to the to the point of a i'm trying to think of the best way of putting it i mean they do so little that you think i wish sometimes i look at it and think i would have done a little bit more Mm -hmm. you know that there there was a that green site could have been a little better if they'd have done this or you know this tea site would be better if it was two feet higher you know the, the you know he is he will hold to his minimalist beliefs uh, like it's a religion, I, I think. I mean, this is me reviewing one of my peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I respect that. I, I think that if he's working on a great site uh, and he puts the time into the rooting element of the golf course, that minimalism can pay huge dividends. Uh, where it's obviously a threat is on a lesser site. And if he isn't able to root it uh, accordingly, that could be problematic but he doesn't pick lesser sites generally and spends that time finding the routing that allows uh, the ultimate expression of minimalism bill and ben they're from what i see again they rely heavily on their collaborators it's the the shaping crew are making a lot of decisions based on what i see and their reaction is between bill and them during his visits there there appears to be a lot more uh, local excavation around green sites and the green sites are elevated so they're they're building up on top of a landscape and the the greens are three four five feet above existing terrain around them and from a uh, an architectural point of view that creates elevated greens that are challenging to hit and hold uh, and it makes surrounding contours that are rejective uh, and I can see that when I go around I'm like okay there's the borrow pit where they went and dug the material out of mm-hmm. and here's the green site right here where they piled it so you know those are the subtleties that I see that maybe you don't 
you see that at, at Sand Valley in particular. That was one of the, the first things that I noticed playing Bill's course is just that element of the green and, and the piling of sand and getting that height on the greens, which is uh, you don't get as much of that on your golf course. No, we, we were trying hard to get, uh, you know, I, I coming from Scotland, those Lynx courses in Scotland, very few of them have elevated greens. You know, Royal Dornock would be a great example of one that does have them. Uh, but most others, if you're playing them, you're able to bound the ball in from way off the green and roll it up right onto the putting surface. I think that's key, essential to Lynx golf or to, to the ground game that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. And so the only way you can achieve that is to build at grade, which is much harder. It's a, it's a lot more difficult to to build at grade or below grade than it is to do above. But it's the only way to get to to allow a player to use the ground to their advantage to roll the ball onto the green. Since we're talking about your con, uh, contemporaries as kind of a way to to bookend our conversation. There's a. I think you read it. I think you made it and quoted or seen it on Twitter and made a reaction to it. Was there's a Mike Mike Kaiser wrote something or was interviewed and it came off like Mike Kaiser wrote it and it was posted and he he said something about creating I guess rivalries. I might be misquoting him, but creating rivalries and competition against the architects that he's worked with yourself, Tom, Bill, and he hasn't worked with Gil Hans yet, but he probably will at some point. Is do you do you feel like a pawn in that? Is that good for you to have that knowing that like the the best golf patron on the planet right now is maneuvering you guys against each other? If that's the right way to put it, I don't think there's. It's not against one another particularly. I mean, I, the, the, you may see it that way. I'm not sure we see it that way. Uh, I, I'm incredibly grateful. If I am a pawn, I'm really, really, really grateful to be one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a bad yeah, there, pawn. Yeah, there are a hundred guys who'd love to be that pawn. Yeah, so for that, I am eternally grateful to the Kaiser family that I get to be a pawn. And if I'm the third string pawn, I'm okay with it because at least I'm on the board. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do feel guilty that there are architects out there uh, a number of whom uh, deserve to be a pawn, uh, who could do great work, uh, and maybe they'll get their chance. Uh, I hope that they do, uh, and they're every bit as talented as the pawns that are currently on the board. Uh, they're they're just, you know, not they're just not on the board, not yet. Yeah, I so, wonder. I wonder what it'll take to get them on the board. You know, you were when he built Band and Dunes. You know, nobody in the golf business, probably not too many people outside of Scotland knew who you were, definitely not in America. So he went with an unknown. And even Tom Doak at Pacific Dunes was not that well known outside golf course architecture and the people who followed it. Um, Absolutely right. Do you, I wonder if, I wonder, I was wondering when will Mike Kaiser or his son, sons go back to that model and tap somebody who, whose moment is due. I guess you you wouldn't have any way of knowing. You want to be you want to get that job too, but um, do you think you know, it, heard, it will happen? I, I did hear a comment. I can't remember if it was from Mike or Michael, but there, at some point, I, I think a year or so ago, you know, someone said, you know, well, the Kaisers should be picking, you know, another unknown. You know, that that's what they should be doing, uh, and no. they themselves said, and I can't remember which one of them, that well, those unknowns were the ones we found. So we we can legitimately, you know, why doesn't someone else go hire someone unknown? No, yeah, like we did. You know, why why doesn't you know the next Mike Kaiser go hire, you know, 
uh, King Collins to to go. You know, maybe it's Zach Blair. Maybe he's going to be the next Mike Kaiser, uh, and King's Collins will be the 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 next Kurt Crenshaw. You know, maybe. I guess that's maybe a bigger these- question: is is there another Kaiser out there somewhere? You know, wanted to get into the golf development business. Yes, there always is. There always is. You know, before Mike, it was uh, Herb Kohler. You know, uh, you know. Right now, it could be Rick Kane who who did Tower Eighty. You know, there, there's always going to be a small handful uh, of of golf centric, uh, extremely wealthy guys that that want to build great golf. And you know, in in history, those guys have built golf just for themselves. You know, the the difference with Mike was he did it for the public. That's probably the biggest difference. You know, and then again, else. we, we uh, <laughs> I wonder if does the world really need more, you know, remote golf destination, you know, dream golf. I'd rather see somebody go develop existing rundown courses in city areas that, you know, everybody can play. Kids can play and get there. You know what? That is, uh, I will agree with you 100% there. I think that is where golf, at least right now, needs to be. You know, I think there are so many brownfield golf courses, you know, meaning that they've already been built once, that all the infrastructure's there, the permits have already been granted. There's no fight from the non-golfers about it. And the golfers aren't interested because the architecture's boring. You know, if, if I and others went to those golf courses and spent just a few million dollars and we got to reimagine them, those golf courses could be so much better than they are today. Uh, and it would and the and the impact little. that they would have on on golf and participation and enthusiasm would likely surpass what band and dunes and Cabot links do because more people would have access to it in a potential way. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what's happening with the uh, Goat Park and you know the Winter Park Nine and you know Sweetens Cove? I mean, they they all illustrate that great golf architecture neither has to be on a phenomenal site nor has to cost a fortune you do need talented architects <laughs> That's, you do you do you need art talented architects which was missing I, for well, i don't talent maybe is not the right word but a willingness to to be creative and explore that was missing for decades and decades you're exactly right i'm not sure that it was about talent it was about direction and given a, a better direction, which we're seeing now, I think that the next generation of architects, you know, they get to to start where we finish, where the four people you mentioned finish. And, and the youngest of those four is me at 51. So I'm not 30 anymore. The next group of architects are already in a sprint, right? They're, they don't have to fight against convention to get themselves heard, mm-hmm. which is where we all started. You're, you're right. I mean, there's always the first generation that are, are the trailblazers, which were you, you and Bill and Tom specifically, and the people that you brought up and taught how to do this. Yeah, they're poised to take over once when the time is right. I guess the question is, when and where is that going to be? Right now. It's going to be right now. I hope so. I hope, hope I these guys so. are getting, getting jobs. We. We don't need more golf courses, but we need, we could, like we said, we could do a lot with the golf course that we already have. We could. We've got thousands of them, and many hundreds, if not thousands of them, are due for great architecture to be either brought back to them or added to them. I think 
part of that, what I see, you know, Gill's doing all these remodels, bringing back phenomenal architecture. But I think there's an opportunity to take courses that never had good architecture and bring it to them. Yes, there's there are far more of those in existence than there are, there are. great sleeping, you know, under under, you know, architecture under layers. You know, archaeological yeah. architecture is rare. There's so many, there's thousands and thousands of nondescript courses that could be pumped full of life. Yeah. Well, going so back to the... There's life in it yet. Going back to the, uh, as we wrap this up, going back to the big picture, even though we agree that pumping new life into desolate courses in urban areas is, is would be great for everybody, where in the world do you, would you like to build a golf course that you haven't yet? You've built two courses in Scotland, which is remarkable. You built a, a band and you've had some really great projects. Where ideally... Would you like to, I mean, if somebody could say, David, where do you want to go? I'll buy the property. Let's build it. Do you have a, a site or a region in mind that you've always dreamed of, of hitting? Oof. You know, uh, there are. Uh, you know, I've never actually worked on the eastern seaboard. Uh, Mammoth is as far east as I've managed to get, uh, unless, of course, you count Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> you know, I... Uh, I'd love to do a course at Streamsong. You know, I, I would love to add my thumbprint to the mix down there. I think that something that speaks to my ethos right now would be great in that mix. So I'll throw that out there if uh, if anybody's listening. Right. Uh, if you really want to talk about the big four, get them all together at one site. That would be cool. Uh, Long Island has always been my, uh, you know, pipe dream. Uh, I looked at a couple of sites over the years. Believe it or not, I looked at Friars Head prior to uh, Coor Crenshaw. At one point, that was a Fazio site. Uh, and at another point, I was talking to the owners before I did Band and Dunes. Uh, I, I looked at the site that Sabonic now sits on way back when. Hmm. So, you know, I, I looked at another site that hasn't been built uh, that I believe Fazio's looking at. So I've looked at three different sites on Long Island, believe it or not, all in sand because that's all that's there. Uh, I never managed to convert anything. So that's probably, for me, uh, you know, Long Island would seem to be the fife of America. Yeah. the And the white whale for you. That would be the white whale. Yeah. It's the kingdom of golf in America is Long Island. What is the best modern golf course that you've seen? The one you like the best that you have not been involved in building? Probably modern. That's a really tough one. You know, the one that jumps right to the front of my mind is Kings Barnes. In so much as, you know, that was created. Uh, and it's just a marvel to me when I play it that uh, Mark Parson uh, and Kyle Phillips created such an amazing golf course from very little you know as a testament to the skill of modern architecture i don't think much beats king's barns i mean it, it, when when bill and ben take sand hills or or tom takes tar et and you take a site that's already a nine out of ten and you build a nine out of ten golf course that's to be applauded but when you take a site that's three out of ten and you build a nine out of ten that's to be marveled at uh, so, uh, Kings Barnes, I'll throw it out if you only give me one. That's the one. That, that's, that counts. That's the first vote. Yeah. I ask everybody that. That's the first vote for Kings Barnes, surprisingly. We get a lot yeah. of sand hills and a lot of packed dunes. Yeah, and they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. But I, I, I've given you the reasons why I would call it my modern uh, favorite, but because it's, it's such a statement of modern architecture and the skills therein. 
and architecture does denote originally building something and that's what yeah it is. yeah yeah david this has been fun i really enjoyed Absolutely. the conversation i appreciate you taking the time to do this and sit down with me it was an honor to talk to you likewise it was fun enjoy the rest of your holiday appreciate it you too thanks a lot you know i do find it kind of strange actually that at various points in his career david's had to really publicly defend and explain his architecture i don't know why that is i don't know why he's had to take up the microphone and talk about it when so many of his contemporaries don't uh, what what how did he get put in that position um I, the only thing that i can come back to is when you take chances and you push forth ideas and you're willing to advance the art and, and test the boundaries of, of what is accepted or what is expected, it's going to cause a reaction. That's what we talked about. I guess it's a way to look at what he's doing. He's more effective at that than almost anybody else because he has caused such diverse range of opinion and reaction. Of course, architects catching flack for their work is nothing new. It happened to the Golden Age architects. Robert Trent Jones faced a litany of professional complaints in the 50s and 60s when he was modifying courses for professional tournaments. Everything that Pete Dye's ever done basically has been a lightning rod for criticism. So it's a good club to be in. And in a way, David's doing something right if he's provoking emotion. I'd never spoken to him before this. I didn't, I didn't know him. Uh, I liked his work, had no reason not to have a lot of respect for him. But after this conversation, I actually had even more respect for David McClay Kidd. Not only do I like that he gets fired up and I love to have a conversation like that, but he's an incredibly intelligent and analytical guy. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of thought behind what he says and what he does and the art that he creates. And I have a much better appreciation for that now, and I think you probably do too. I mean, just the, the willingness to rethink a sacred tenet like McKinsey's idea of, of making a whole look easy but play difficult or look difficult but play easy. Uh, David McClay Kidd is willing to break that apart and reanalyze that and turn it over and, and come up with a new concept. And whether you support that or not, if you think that's misguided or if you think it's brilliant, it's new, it's fresh, and it's daring. It's, there's courage behind that. And to actually put that in the ground, I think that should be applauded because it's fresh it's interesting, it adds variety to the golf landscape, and it helps move and advance the art one step further. But golf architecture is in a pretty good place if these are the conversations we're having right now. Out of all the things we could be talking about, we're focusing on things like, is there such a thing as too much width? Uh, how big do you make the playing field? How do you present or show the avenues of play? Uh, how closely or how severely do you defend the routes and the angles on a particular hole? What's the psychology of width? and of showing grass. Do you you show everything or do you obscure elements of the golf course? I mean, these are fundamental aspects that have been debated for a century or more in golf course architecture. It's about strategy. It's about hazard arrangements. It's about options. It's about the psychology of the architect versus the player. It's about the utilization of ground. I mean, if these are the discussions we're having now, we're okay. We're going to be all right going forward because there have been periods in architecture, decades have gone by, when this stuff was an afterthought. And golf design and golf development was fixated on elements that had little or even nothing to do with the things that David was talking about. David was awesome. I appreciate that conversation. Thank you, David, for coming on. Thanks to you all for listening. Remember to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Feed the Ball. 
Remember to subscribe to the Feed the Ball podcast on iTunes so you don't miss any episodes. You'll get instant updates when I post a new episode. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until the next episode, all the best.